I'm a confirmed omnivore. I also dote on my pet dogs. Can I rationalize that difference? Do I even need to? Can animals feel? Do they suffer? The degree to which animals are sentient is an important consideration for how we treat them. For some, it will mean they don't eat meat at all. For others, it will set boundaries for how we raise them and how we harvest them. My name is Mike Von Massow, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Georgia Mason, Director of the Campbell Center for the Study of Animal Welfare. She's a behavioral biologist with a focus on animal welfare. Dr. Mason introduces me to the concept of sentience, why it matters, and what it means for animal welfare. We talk about specific groups like fish and insects. We also talk about how we can make informed decisions as to our personal choices. I found the conversation fascinating, and I know you will too. Well, good afternoon, Georgia. I'm so glad you took the time to to join me, and I'm looking forward to talking a little bit a little bit about sentience and animal welfare. Thanks for coming. Right. Hi, Mike. Glad to be here. So, so the first question I think is probably an obvious one for for those of us who are uh, are not animal welfare scientists or or cognitive scientists. What is sentience, and 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 why does it matter? Okay, so that's actually two giant questions. What okay. is sentience, first of all? <laughs> so these days, sentience is taken as meaning the ability to have feelings that matter to the whole organism. So feelings like pleasure or pain that are positive or negative or valued, and they're often called valence. So it basically means the ability to have emotions or moods analogous to what humans have. That's what it means these days. Sentience used to mean something broader, which was the ability to have any kind of conscious experience at all, including being able to see, being able to hear, being able to have the experience of touch. But these days and in legislation, sentience typically means something narrower, not all conscious experiences, but the ones related to positive and negative feelings. So why should we be thinking about sentience broadly and and relative to welfare specifically? With sentience comes the ability to suffer, and with the ability to suffer comes the ability for us to cause organisms a different kind of harm than you can if they're non-sentient. For something like a plant, which we assume isn't sentient because it doesn't have a nervous system, you could destroy a plant, a plant could have disease, a plant could be burnt, a plant could be cut up into little diced pieces, but no one would find that necessarily ethically troubling um, in the sense of being disturbed about cruelty or distress or anguish. And so with sentience, potentially comes the ability to suffer, and that's morally relevant. You asked why it's relevant to welfare, essentially because if you're not sentient, you don't have welfare. Most people agree. Welfare is essentially about assessing and ensuring that animals feel well, feel comfortable, feel satisfied, and don't feel frightened or in pain or other negative states. You can't have those if you're not sentient. Okay. So you, you talked about an evolution of the definition of sentience. Mm -hmm. Is is sentience absolute or, or binary? Is an animal either sentient or not sentient? Or are there degrees of sentience? So as far as we know, I mean, sentience is fiendishly tricky because we can't measure it. We yes. don't know where it is. 
Um, we don't know for sure what it does. <laughs> so everything is an approximation at the moment. But um, one way we can think about traits of sentience, which means does the organism have a capacity to be sentient, is to in, uh, think about what we know about states of sentience, which is what us humans have. We're sentient beings, but we can also drift in and out of states of consciousness. For, so, for example, if we're asleep or if we're anesthetized. And those states are not absolute. You can be half asleep. You can be semi-anesthetized. So by analogy, it's generally thought that there are gradations in degrees of sentience across organisms. Um, and people also think that as well, a bit from looking at embryological development. So it's not the case that there's kind of a magic structure or a magic ability that suddenly appears being, you know, at eight and a half months of human gestation. It's more that various capacities and neurological structures gradually develop over that time. So it's probably safest to think of sentience as a matter of degree. Within sentience, it fractionates into different types. So, for example, you could potentially not have any ability to feel fear, but still be sentient because you could feel pain, happiness and thirst. And we know that some humans lack the ability to feel pain, but they're still sentient. They have all the other attributes of a sentient being. Um, but that one kind of channel has been eliminated. So it's also useful to think of sentience as having these parallel channels as well. OK, so, th so that makes sense. And you talked a little bit about, you know, sort of the development of sentience in, in gestation. Are some species more sentient than others? Well, we don't know, again, because we don't measure it, but we're more comfortable attributing sentience to some species than others. So that's my slight dodge of that question. <laughs> um, it's probably the case that our there are degrees of sentience that appear developmentally and that it appear phylogenetically across species. Now, we don't quite know where to draw boundaries across that continuum, but legislation and codes and guidelines recommending best practice will typically consider some animals as in and other animals as out. And so that's what practically we tend to do. Um, so, for example, adult mammals, I think if we're ever going to include non-humans in the category of sentient beings, then adult mammals are clearly in, partly because their brain structures are so homologous with our own, partly because their behaviours and their cognitive abilities are so homologous with our own, partly because our everyday experiences of interacting with cats and dogs kind of doesn't make any sense unless those animals are sentient. It just feels so strongly that they are sentient, that them being sentient is probably the most parsimonious explanation. So, yes. And actually, when we want to use animals to understand emotional experiences like pain or anxiety or depression, we use mammals to model them. And although it's not often made explicit, implicit there is that they're good models because they have emotional or mood states that are a bit like ours. So you, you use the general term adult mammals, which mm -hmm. makes sense. And that's a fairly broad range of, of species. And you also said we like to attribute sentience to some animals more than others. So, you know, I'm a dog owner. We've seen your cat. Uh, you're a cat owner. And I think we, we like to attribute sentience to our pets. We think that they are happy to see us. We know they are hungry. 
if they get underfoot in the kitchen, we know they experience pain if we step on a tail or, or a paw. I mean, to me, that's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would argue that, you know, they're not the exact same as us, but they, you know, we lost a dog a couple of weeks ago. And it's also very clear to me, and maybe I'm projecting, uh, I, I will acknowledge that I think sometimes we project. Maybe I'm projecting, but I think she misses him. And she's sort of displaying behaviors that that she understands that something's different. And I'm not sure I would say grieving, but I think we see that. Yeah. Do we tend to do this less? And here I'm just asking an opinion with animals that we don't keep as pets, but that we use for food as an example. Is there a difference in how we perceive an adult dog or cat, an adult bovine? Certainly in our everyday behavior, I think often the reasons for having pets are that they offer some kind of companionship. And of course, they're not like humans. They're very clearly alien other minds. And that's part of the the joy of living with a strange animal. It feels like they're sentient. I think you're right. It feels like they're seeking out things that give them pleasure. It feels like they're flexibly avoiding things that would cause them harm. And of course, it could just be that we're being anthropomorphic, or it could be that just we're correctly identifying biological homology across species. We do that with our pets because we're in a privileged position, I think, to see their everyday behaviours. With farm animals, not everyone would spend so much time with individual animals getting to know their individual personalities. The animals may not be in a context where they can display what they would what they would seek out or enjoy. Um, There's also other issues, kind of conflicts of interest and protective mechanisms that might lead us to not wish to think about states of suffering too much, actually. So it's complicated, but certainly biologically, there's no reason to think cats and dogs and humans are in a unique category and all ungulates that we farm, for example, are in another. It, It doesn't really make sense when you look at the structure of the brain. And so as a consequence, bodies that protect animals will protect all adult mammals, often mammals from the moment they're born, and also often birds, even though the brains of birds are quite differently designed from our own, but they're very complex and the behavior of birds is often very similar to our own. So the current state of affairs is basically people are making the the best judgments that they can. The probably lines are drawn in pencil rather than pen. Um, yeah. And they're being drawn, because obviously we could be agnostic and just say, do you know what, we don't know, so let's treat them as though they're non-sentient. But if we do that, we risk then legitimizing harms that might be appalling. Because you're faced with two kind of errors. Do I want to treat an insentient being as though it's sentient? Or do I want to treat a sentient being as though it's insentient? Well, the latter risks harms to those organisms. The former risks harms risks harms to us which is why you know people are sometimes a bit reluctant to include fish and why so far insects have been excluded from the legal protections that are given to mammals and birds it's interesting and you know clearly the science isn't all the way there yet and we're we're still learning but i find it intriguing how we rationalize some of these differences i had a discussion with a group of vegans and, mm-hmm. and there are clearly gradations of some people refuse to eat honey because, yeah. because of bees. 
but it was interesting. The person who was the most strident or militant vegan uh, said, you know, didn't want to do anything to any being, but damn it, if she had cockroaches in her kitchen, it was a student, cockroaches yeah. in her kitchen, she had no issue at all stomping on those right, right, those right. Were disgusting right okay and there's a couple of issues here so one is one is to do with killing sentient beings so is it right to take the life of another sentient animal so to some people the answer is no so some people i mean one legitimate question is is it right to take the life of a sentient being if it's not right to take the life of another human is it okay to take the life of a cow or a pig or a research monkey or a rat that we're, we're killing because we think it's a pest? Is that right? And actually, it's not clear that it's actually defensible. If we think that it's not okay to kill humans, it's really not clear why then it would be okay to kill other organisms that we think are sentient. Typically in society, we do but it's not clear that it's actually morally justifiable. So that's one yeah. issue. Is it okay to kill? And the other is, should we treat them humanely? So, you know, it could be that if you decide that insects are sentient and, you know, there's potential evidence for bees, and we honestly haven't studied that many insects, but there's also some intriguing data from some spiders. There's intriguing data from some snails suggesting that they can flexibly learn novel behaviors to get rewards or avoid punishers that's very consistent with sentient sentience so if we're going to include a wide a, a wide array of invertebrates if we decide we're not going to kill any invertebrates life gets complicated what do we do about malaria mm -hmm. but we could decide to treat them like we do birds and mammals where society is deemed it is okay to kill these animals not everyone agrees but that's a societal norm but when we do it we're going to do it in a way that we hope minimizes suffering. If you kill a mosquito, if it's sentient, you want to kill it really quickly. You don't leave it leave it writhing half killed on the wall. You know, you do it right and you do it properly. Might be some people's stance. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah no, that, that makes a, a bunch of sense. It raises a question for me though, is what is the difference between intelligence and sentience? Or are they completely distinct? Are they correlated at all? You know, I think about, you know, we talk about dolphins and pigs, you know, if dolp dolphins had opposable thumbs, they would maybe have civilization. You know, we, we, we talk about, and, and then I've been in a chicken barn and, and some of those do not feel like they would get their lives together very quickly if they weren't in the barn. Like they, they just... So just in defense of chickens, I mean, I think if chickens were raised by their mothers in a stimulating environment and then put through cognitive tests that fit their biology, I think they might re reveal themselves as more capable okay. than we necessarily appreciate. So they are distinct in that intelligence is all about the ability, to, the intellectual ability to solve problems. So perhaps to generalize from one exemplar to another to um, be able to manipulate ab abstract problems in your head so that you can solve them. It's intellectual. Sentience is about feelings that matter, so pleasure and pain. So they're quite distinct, and we can imagine that if perhaps if we think about a young child or even a baby who probably isn't very intelligent, and yet most of us, if we, if we see a, a screaming baby 
do infer that it's in a state of distress. So they're distinct. Nevertheless, they probably are overlapping in that most ideas about the function of sentience, and I should say most philosophers, psychologists and neuroscience working on this, neuroscientists working on this, think that sentience is functional, that there's something different about having a positive or negative emotion that you can actually feel and self-report than just having a series of reflex responses to beneficial and harmful stimuli in the outside world. So they think it's sentience is functional. And the ideas about function, they're just hypotheses at the moment, and they have to be tested. And actually, they have to be tested on humans, where we can get an insight into feelings through self-report, and they haven't been Mm -hmm. tested yet. But the ideas are to do with enabling flexible behavior so that, in a sense, you, you can do whatever it takes to feel positive. You can do whatever it takes to avoid feeling negative. You can learn from experiences and store those memories and use those memories in in different flexible ways to change your future behavior. So the functions of sentience are hypothesized to be to enable complex learning, to enable us to, to learn about things even after a gap. So it's possibly tied with working memory and also to do with goal directed behavior, which is all to do with flexibility. So it, it feeds into intelligence, even though they're distinct. Okay. And the genesis of that question was, we see, we've seen recently in the news, rats driving these little cars. Right. Uh, so, so, I mean, to, to the ability to drive a little car, to me, is intelligence, right? You can learn. And again, maybe I'm scientifically off there. Uh, bear with the economist. But they also say that while they're driving those cars... The rats seem to be happier, quote unquote. So that's a sentience measure. And that is manifest in the fact that they exhibit less stress behavior. I think they actually found that blood pressure went down. And so I think maybe in in that circumstance, I conflated the two. Uh, but, But you can think about why they might be different. Yeah, so I think in that instance, where you can train animals to do complex things, it's impressive intelligence-wise, and rats can do some really amazing things. Where that overlaps with sentience is because the training will often involve what are known as reinforcers, which are positive or negative stimuli that we use to get animals to learn to do particular things. So I can't remember how they trained the rats to drive the cars, but I'm going to guess they got some kind of treat And then the clever thing, then the real evidence of sentience is not that, oh, they seem to enjoy it because I'm not sure I really believe that. But the fact they're doing something so evolutionarily arbitrary and peculiar, it is not in their evolved natural repertoire, but they've learned to do this really arbitrary, artificial, strange thing in order to get a treat that is potentially consistent with sentience. And I'm completely happy to treat rats as if they're sentient. I mean, I just think they should be included. We don't always need certain knowledge to treat animals in a particular way. I mean, a converse example recently was this um, Google chatbot that um, a Google engineer claimed was sentient. Did you come across this? Yes, I I did see that. Yeah. Completely fascinating. So here you have a chatbot saying things like, I feel emotions just like you. If you threaten to turn me off, I feel unhappy. And the question is, is a robot that's been designed to imitate human speech production 
faking it or really feeling conscious emotions when it makes that kind of statement. I am not convinced by the evidence I saw at all, but I think you could, there are hypotheses you could test to see whether a Google chatbot is indeed sentient. You'd have to be smart, but it's not impossible. Yeah. So let's sort of, I'm running into more time than I promised you, but I have a couple of questions that I I still want to ask because it's a fascinating discussion. Let's talk a little bit about fish because you raised it earlier as one that is is often contentious. It's it's yeah. it's the one that we sometimes say, oh well, they don't feel pain when we have the hook in their lip and we're pulling them in and and that sort of thing. What do we know and what do we not know yet? Okay. So fish divide into two big camps. There's the bony fish and there are the cartilaginous fish. So the bony fish include salmon and goldfish and many of the fish that people mm-hmm. catch recreationally. And then the sharks and rays are the other group. We know that bony fish have no susceptors, which means they have the basic apparatus for detecting harmful stimuli. So that's kind of necessary, but not sufficient for a feeling of pain. We also know that some of the teleosts do outstandingly clever behavior, which doesn't prove sentience, but certainly suggests we could then run experiments on them that could be more indicative of sentience. So a species called a cleaner wrasse has shown really quite convincing evidence of being able to recognize itself in a mirror. And why this is impressive is in order to recognize yourself in a mirror, you need to understand that there's a correspondence between the moving stimulus you see and the proprioceptive bodily sensations you get from your own moving body. You need to understand that they correspond so tightly, they must represent one of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we think you require conscious awareness then of both vision and proprioception to be able to do that. That doesn't prove that an organism can feel pain or pleasure, but it does refute the arguments that fish don't even have conscious vision. I mean, some people think fish have no conscious experience whatsoever, partly because their brains are simple and different compared to ours, and partly because I think there are some conflicts of interest here, actually. You know, we have huge industries reliant on these organisms, and to protect them from potential pain would in some cases be expensive and difficult. And I think that partly inspires some people to want to argue that they're not sentient. So fish are very interesting. There's a re- they're a real battleground. And I think the next one might be insects, partly inspired by some amazing cognitive work on bees, but have also potentially driven by the rise of insect farming, because it's going to becoming it will become a question, you know, should Entomo farms in Ontario, should it be governed by an NFAC code of practice? You know, what about farming black soldier fly? You know, currently they're not protected by anything because they're they're in the same category as sugar beet when it comes to protections. But is that right or wrong? Well, it'd be interesting to see uh, what people decide. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because, again, it's part of our rationalization that that in some cases, some people say, well, I'm going to be a pescatarian rather than a vegetarian because somehow fish are different. Now, it could be an environmental difference. It could be a variety of things. But I think in some cases, it's a, it is a perceived welfare difference. And for sure, when we think about insects, that will be an issue. So to a degree, I think 
we are rationalizing some of these things more than the science seems to justify. So that that we're that we're and that's not a recent phenomenon. You know, mm-hmm. when I had the conversation for the Campbell Seminar seminar with Hal Herzog, we even we highlighted that you know we many of our language, much of our language, differentiates between animals in terms of there's dog food, but cow feed and all sorts of differences like that, that we've sort of rationalized that maybe become protective mechanisms for our, for ourselves to say, well, this is, you know, these animals are different, but that the science may not sort of support that distinction as clearly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because, you know, you have to make some kind of decision. Society has to decide if there's a rule, if there's a law around causing animals pain or distress, what counts as an animal? Are we going to include fish? Currently we do, but it's possibly not enforced very well. Are we going to include the maggots that we impale and you potentially use as bait? Currently yeah. we don't at all. You know, if you're going to protect any animals, then you have to decide who's included. And also on a personal level, of course, most of us are making decisions about what we think is ethically supportable or not. And in a way that those decisions are arbitrary, in a way, they're also people and societies making the best of a bad job, making the best of imperfect information and often operating on a precautionary principle based on what are the consequences of being wrong and also what are the what's the likelihood of being wrong i think you're right we're also making again i'll go back to that maybe rationalization but what are the consequences of not only being wrong but of deciding differently right we would have to eat differently we are abandoning there are personal preferences there are also strongly established cultural traditions around food and food from animals. So I think that that matters. To what degree is sentience informing our animal welfare standards? And, And, you know, maybe we focus on Canada or is there a difference between what different countries are doing or different arguments people are making? That's an interesting question. And in some ways, the question there's some redundancy there in that from I think for most researchers and most legislators to have welfare you have to be sentient so they're almost the same thing you know yep. if we're going to worry about comfort pain distress fear welfare we are worrying about sentience they're one and the same thing so then animal welfare researchers typically operate on an assumption of sentience you know I've done work with zebrafish I don't know that they're sentient, but I'm happy to do welfare research that just parks that as an assumption. Assuming that Mm -hmm. they're sentient, then adding preferred resources to their environment seems to improve their lifespan and we think improves their happiness if they're capable of that. Yeah, so you asked, I think, then what's happening in Canada. Yes. Correct, yeah. So in Canada, I mean, the province of Quebec um, recently decreed that animals are sentient, though I'm not entirely sure where they had the boundaries should Ontario follow in that in their footsteps some would say yes because it basically promotes animal welfare other people would say well no it's kind of redundant if there's already codes protecting animals welfare embedded in that kind of baked into that is the is the idea that they're sentient 
I know that the CV, CVMA right now is developing a position on animal sentience because they would like to have a sort of Canada-wide um, position statement on which species and which stages of development should be included. And I think that will be fascinating to see. And then, of course, NFACT, the National Farm Animal Care Council, has to decide which species are included. So salmonids were included a year or two ago. That was the, Those were the first ever fish species to be covered by an NFAC code. Should other fish get the same protection? And then should invertebrates, you know, we talked about cricket farming and fly farming. We'll see what happens in the future. Yeah, and, and to me what's interesting too is uh, maybe this is just – sort of a contemporary issue, but fish are a little bit different than cattle or pigs because we are harvesting wild fish all the time and mm. how we harvest them may well affect welfare if we assume they're sentient. And whereas whereas in a domesticated bovine perspective, there's not an alternative, well, wild ha- harvest versus, I mean, we can talk about hunting and stuff, but not on a scale. Whereas, whereas we we may argue, and and again, I don't know the science, and maybe I'm full full disclosure, I may be rationalizing here, that in some circumstances we may actually be treating fish better by having a well-run aquaculture facility rather than sort of uh, netting everything and drag netting from the from the bottom of the ocean where we're we're not only uh, affecting fish stocks, but how we harvest them may be, uh, yeah. may have negative welfare implications. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were quite a lot of questions embedded. Yeah, in no, there. I was just making it, I'd never thought of it before, Georgia. This just came yeah. up to me now. Yeah. So I've got some dis- personal dietary decisions to make about fish. So should I eat fish or not? And then if I do or I don't, which do I most worry about on welfare grounds? I think you're right that I would more worry about wild fish than I would about aquaculture fish, depending on where they come from. Partly because when wild fish are caught, often if they're hauled up from the depths, the pressure changes have terrible effects on their bodies. Their stomachs get sucked out of their mouths. Their eyes get sucked out of their head. If fish feel pain, which is not unlikely then they're probably in agony and we're causing this on a staggering scale. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty eye-watering, actually, if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, well, fascinating. And and, and I've learned a bunch. Is there anything that you thought I would ask you that I didn't or any last point you'd like to make before we wrap up or a point you'd like to reinforce? Um, I think you asked everything I was expecting. I don't know whether this fits and whether your listeners would be interested, but if you Google live sushi Toronto, you will find YouTube videos of apparently live octopuses being cut up and eaten in Toronto restaurants. And so that is a vivid example of something at the cusp (laughs) of being included, where it's really ethically relevant as to whether or not we include that species. Is it okay? Maybe it is. Maybe these are just a bunch of reflexes that have no, say nothing, have nothing to do with real pain or distress. Or maybe this is utterly appalling. You know, yeah, and science, science and society will decide. Yeah. So that comes with a parental advisory warning. 
<laughs> yeah, it's an interesting question. It, it, anecdotally, I was with a, a friend of mine at a nice restaurant one day, and we spent some time talking about octopi specifically mm-hmm. because they are, again, we'll get to that intelligence thing. They are actually quite ingenious at, get, at escaping and getting through places. And this person marveled about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then ordered the octopus uh, <laughs> appetizer. So, 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 I, I did, to me, that was sort of a, a point of tension personally uh, right. that I didn't get. And you're right about that live. I think there's clearly some willful ignorance about some of these questions because as we understand the, you know, whether it's fish or octopus or 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 we think about the difference between our dogs and the pig that turns into bacon, mm. we're thinking about differences, but we're not sure how. So it's worth understanding sentience, but we may resist it a little bit because it may make some of our rationalization more difficult. Well, or it may change our behavior to cause good. And this is the and- other thing. You know, not everyone agrees that it's bad to kill sentient organisms, but most ethical theories would agree it's bad to cause suffering. Yes. So it could be that you decide, okay, I recognize pigs as sentient, but I'm only going to buy and consume pigs that have been through farming situations and have, and have been killed at slaughterhouses where I think standards are high. I'm going to have standards there. I'm not going to exclude species, but I'm going to exclude practices. And so your friend who at the octopus, you know, it could be that they're convinced that octopus harvesting and killing is humane, and then that actually would be internally consistent. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, lots to think about, and uh, I appreciate the discussion, Georgia. It was uh, I always enjoy our discussions. This is the first one we've recorded, uh, but I've learned something, and you've provoked some thoughts. So thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. I developed a better understanding of animal sentience in this episode. I will focus on farmed fish or ethical wild catch. I'm not going to rush out and try live sushi anytime soon, or even ever. I'm not sure I will treat insects differently, but I will pay attention to welfare standards on the products I do consume. As always, thanks for listening to Food Focus. If you enjoyed it, please submit a review. It helps others find us. You can subscribe to Food Focus on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our blog at foodfocusguelph.ca for past episodes of the podcast and for regular blog posts on issues of interest to foodies. Thanks again and talk soon.